This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That is on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with Onelenzinzi, Tracy Pumgard, and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Thousands march in Madagascar's capital to protest against the country's new electoral laws. Members of the Congolese community living in South Africa accuse the DRC's ambassador to South Africa of plotting against his fellow countrymen who protested outside the embassy. In economics, a human rights watch says an Egyptian army operation against militants in Sinai has left 400,000 civilians in urgent need of humanitarian aid. And in sports, organizers of the London Marathon announced the death of a participant in Sunday's grueling 42-kilometer event. But first, the news with an Onelinsinzi. Thank you, Spoo. Pro-government soldiers and jihadists have clashed in Yemen's southern city of Tyres following the killing of an aid worker with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Fighting in the city's Jamalia district came after the governor of Tyres launched an operation against jihadists that he suspected were behind the murder of the ICRC employee over the weekend. Jamalia is controlled by pro-government forces, but there is a jihadist presence in the area. Fierce clashes broke out after the operation was launched on Monday. Paris attack suspect Salah Abdel Salam has been jailed for 20 years of a shootout with police in Belgium. The 27-year-old was convicted of attempted murder with a terrorist connection alongside his accomplice. He is allegedly among the only surviving members of an ISIS cell that had murdered 130 people at a nightclub in Paris in 2015 before fleeing to his hometown of Brussels. The BBC's Gavin Lee reports. Today, a court in the heavily secured Palais de Justice in Brussels, Abdesalam was sentenced to 20 years in prison for attempted murder, along with the second suspect who fled that day, Tunisian national Sufyan Ayari, who was said to have fought with so-called Islamic State in Syria. Salah Abdesalam refused to attend court for today's verdict and remains in solitary confinement in prison in France ahead of the main trial of his alleged involvement in the Paris attacks. Zimbabwe police have been deployed in Marange, east of the country, where thousands of residents are demonstrating. The demonstrators are demanding a share of the riches of diamond mining in the area. They say their communities have not been benefiting from their diamonds. Ntakwane reports. Marange residents carrying placards, some saying, where is our share of our diamonds, have been prevented by police from entering the premises of one of the biggest diamond mines in the country. They say they remain poor while the diamonds from their region enrich others. This follows last week's announcement by Parliament that former President Robert Mugabe will answer questions on May 9 about his claims that diamonds worth 15 billion U.S. dollars were looted from the country. 
Meanwhile, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has warned that people found guilty of politically motivated crimes during the run-up to elections may get up to 10 years in jail. The Zimbabwe Judiciary and Police have established special courts to deal with political crimes ahead of the July-August poll. Among crimes that Harare says will not be tolerated are compelling people to attend rallies or preventing them from from doing so. Threats to inflict bodily harm, abduction and damage to property will also be dealt with severely according to authorities. Zimbabwe has a developed has developed a notorious record in recent years for violence in the run-up to elections and the rigging of polls by the ruling ZANU-PF. Many analysts say hope that the new Mnangagwa administration will change the country's course towards a truly democratic political process. And lastly, the Nelson Mandela Foundation in South Africa has announced that former American President Barack Obama will deliver this year's 16th Nelson Mandela Annual Lecture. This was announced by the foundation at the Constitutional Hill. He joins the likes of South Africa's former President Tabombeki, former U.S. President Bill Clinton, and former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan, to name a few, who have also delivered the lecture in honor of Mandela's centenary celebrations. The lecture will be delivered on the 17th of July this year, the Nelson Mandela Foundation CEO, Silo Hadang. This year we thought, who can best represent the legacy of Madiba than the person who we believe took on the baton when he became president of his own country. Again, we kept on asking ourselves, who would be able to deal with issues of democracy and in fact African-born? Because we thought, rather, with an African heritage. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me to say to President Barack Obama, we will be looking forward to hosting him as he will be addressing the 16th Nelson Mandela Annual Lecture. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinzi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is 17.06 Central African time. Let's start in Madagascar, where thousands have marched in the capital, Antananarivo, today to protest against the country's new electoral laws and the death of one person killed during similar demonstrations over the weekend. Supporters of opposition leader and former president of the Indian Ocean Island, Mark Ravalomanana, say the new electoral laws are designed to block him from running in election due later this year. The opposition is also challenging provisions on campaign financing and access to media in the new laws. Jessica Ranohefi, country representative of the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, ISA, has more on this protest. Yesterday was quite calm, uh, but the opposition once again called to manifest today and uh, the protesters are planning to to have some quiet kind of funeral vigil in honor of the protester that has uh, who died during the the incident on Saturday uh, we don't have official number um, it's between one and four people that are, who have been killed but what is sure is that they will gather again today at the city hall what have been most noticed so far um, people are starting going to the the, the city hall and the, the police uh, forces are around but contrary to Saturday they are not like in inside the city hall 
what can be seen as, you know, a way to ease the tension. Um, they are just around, not directly with the, uh, the, the protesters. Now, talk to us, uh, Jessica, about the new laws uh, that are at the center of uh, this protest. What is the rationale behind this new law? What the opposition parties uh, are now uh, protesting against is the fact mainly that um, these laws have been uh, passed amidst alleged corruption from some MPs. And they are also protesting against the lack of consensus around these laws, mainly because certain provisions of the laws are considered to favor the ruling party or are contrary to the constitution to the constitution for example some of the provisions um, are reducing the campaign period to seven days uh, for the presidential election and to 15 days against uh, 20 20 uh, 21 days before um, they are also denouncing some uh, provision on the the eligibility, the candidate eligibility, uh, that is uh, seen as a way to 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 exclude some potential major candidate uh, like former President Raval Manana. Now supporters of Mark Raval Manana say the new electoral laws are designed to prevent him from running in the election due later this year. Has Raval Manana publicly made himself available to contest the upcoming election? Yes, some of his uh, statement already indicated that he will be candidate for the next election. Since last year, he has expressed that he would like to run for the next presidential election. Jessica Ranohefi, representative of the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, ISA, in Madagascar, on the line from the capital, Antananarivo. She's in conversation there with my colleague, Kumbero Njadare. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Saturday that he's encouraged by North Korea's decision to suspend nuclear and missile tests and that it's proof that diplomacy solves conflicts. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said his country no longer needed to conduct nuclear tests or intercontinental ballistic missile tests because it had completed its goal of developing the weapons, the Korean Central News Agency said. It was the first time Kim directly addressed his position on North Korea's nuclear weapons programs ahead of planned summits with South Korean President Moon Jae in next week and with U.S. President Donald Trump in late May or early June. To help us make sense of these geopolitical events, Channel Africa spoke to Professor John Strimlau, lecturer at the International Relations Department at South Africa's Wits University, Jamil Ahmad, Global Head of Currency Strategy, and Mark research at FXCM and Matsidiso Mutuening, researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center. Obviously, we don't know until they actually sit down and we see the results. Let me just take a couple of quick reservations because uh, on, on both of those presentations and then just sum up with a final word. Um, on, on, on the one hand, um, Mercedes did remind us that the U.S. has been a policeman. And if you're looking from an African perspective, what's going on in the Sahel, where they're building bases most recently now in, in Agadez and Niger. Yes, they're playing a policeman's function, but Barack Obama really tried to signal that the U.S. could no longer 
be the kind of intervener that he was in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam, for example, and was trying to go in a more collective direction. Donald Trump is coming back to, from, from that, walking that back in his peculiar personal style, which gives me the other reservation I have about uh, what Jamil said, which is that um, it's not America first, it's Donald Trump first. And that's a really big difference, because does he really speak for America? And that's a question I think all Africans have to ask themselves, because he has taken a rather nationalistic, but even more a tribalistic, white um, nationalist approach to American domestic politics, which is very different from Obama. And how that plays out will have a profound influence on the world. And the elephants in the living room that we, we cannot ignore are two. One is the impact of his erratic behavior on the U.S. economy, which could be disruptive to the global economy, and that is a fundamental concern. But the other question, which is the most biggest elephant, is that relationship with Russia, both his financial illicit and the question of, of um, whether or not there was collusion in the election, and that has implications for elections all over the world, including in Africa, of, of the Internet and the information age. The really big story out there is the information revolution. So I just want to draw attention, uh, Benjamin, that there sure. are important uh, themes here that mm. we've signaled, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass on to my two colleagues to do the final sum up, sum up. What are your thoughts there, Jamil, especially the question that makes things complicated? And, you know, you can hear Professor Stremlau very kind of reserved and conservative around that, what people are calling a breakthrough with North Korea. What are your thoughts around that particular aspect of things? Well, it just goes some different uh, distance, actually, towards uh, articulating the unpredictable nature of news flow now when it comes to political news, U.S. administration, Donald Trump himself. Mostly it's Donald Trump himself, of course. Look, North Korea and U.S., this news over the weekend that South Korea and North Korea have reportedly opened up um, phone lines. They're going to be meeting over the next upcoming future. It does go to some dis- some distance towards suggesting, and of course it's suggesting because nobody's actually in these meetings. Sure that relations are unproven. And if North Korea is willing to take down its nuclear weapons or pause its testing, nobody really knows. This would improve risk appetite. It would improve economic sentiment that international relations are unproven. So we have to wait and see. But when it comes to these U.S.-Russia uh, sanctions, I was in Moscow just last week. Sure. These sanctions on Russia and what it's doing is nothing new. Uh, Russia's actually dependent on its own internal resources. Yeah. What it's actually creating is economic fl- uh, market fluctuations. Sorry, When it comes to the currency, Russian rubles obviously weakened very significantly over just one week. This means there's going to be inflation pressures. And actually what it's doing is currency fluctuations mostly in the market. It's going to take a long time towards mm-hmm. being able to articulate what impact this is going to have on the economy. Uh, l- let me come to you now, uh, Matidi. So where do you see things going? There's so many dynamics when it comes to Donald Trump, and you've been specifically looking at Syria in itself because that's where your focus is. I think, Benjamin, to, to sort of try and answer what um, Professor Stemler's, sure. you know, the question of what he put on the table. Yeah. Um, the issue of um, Donald Trump sort of, you know, differing from um, Barack Obama, I, I tend to disagree a little bit because I mean, what we saw as um, Donald Trump's big campaign slogan was for the U.S. to get out of these what he called costly wars. So that has been quite a big thing for him. I think circumstances sort of kept, 
you know, have pulled him in. And we see this issue with what he had said, um, you know, even with the, lay, with the days leading up to the airstrikes, where he said that, I mean, the U.S. is willing to stay in safe, except that if someone else is forking the bill for it. And he essentially was speaking to Saudi Arabia about this, and we've seen subsequent to that Saudi Arabia saying that they're willing to support the U.S. financially for them to stay in Syria. I think also, again, as I mentioned earlier, that Trump essentially, you know, uses this this issue of abroad um, to try and, and, and sort of mitigate domestic um, struggles and, and, and the things that are like kind of, you know, getting in his way of advancing his, his, his campaign locally. And this has been quite evident with his, you know, um, very confused policy of whether or not he's staying, whether or not he's pulling out, what is the U.S.'s role, even in Africa, as Professor Schemler has. In terms of the relations with Russia, you know, it, you know, as the airstrikes went in in Syria after the, you know, the chemical weapons attacks, you know, Nikki Haley, for example, the UN envoy um, for the U.S., Nikki Haley then said that, you know, like the U.S. is going to throw all these sanctions against Russia. Then Trump came back and said, no, that's not what we're doing. Again, as, as, as you know, the two colleagues have mentioned, there's quite a very complicated relationship that he has personally with Russia, but also the, the, the relationship that the U.S. has with Russia and what that means going forward, especially in the Syrian context, um, because a lot of this had been seen as though, you know, there's going to be a confrontation U.S. and Russia, yeah, and that's yeah. why people were calling it a Cold War issue and whatever. I think beyond this, this is actually seeing for us, we're going to see um, the Syrian case as being a platform for the U.S., Russia, as well as other as, mm. other players to sort of flex their muscles and show the world how they're all trying to, you know, race in this race for power, especially in the region, because the Middle East and, and of course, the African continent has been a big platform for U.S. to sort of show the world how, you know, how capable or how, you know, um, how they're able to play this role of sure. police officer of the world quite, you know, exceptionally. And I don't think Donald Trump is about to stay away from mm. that image of the U.S., um, uh, you know, just as yet. I think he's probably going to win elections, and then perhaps there'll be a big configuration after, you know, the next elections. That is Matsidi Sumutuening, researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center. And you also heard from Professor John Strimlau, lecturer at the International Relations Department at South Africa's Wits University. There was also Jamil Ahmad, who is Global Head of Currency Strategy and Market Research at FXCM. They were speaking to Benjamin Mashatama there. I'm Joachim Bulli, the People's Poet in South Africa. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Catch me, all social networks, Joachim Bulli. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It is 1719 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Remember that you can tweet us. We are on Channel Africa 1. You can also send us your emails on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. 
Residents of the African Kingdom of Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, are still weighing up their country's new official name after the king unexpectedly announced it would now be known as Eswatini. King Mswati III, one of the world's few absolute monarchs, declared the name change at celebrations marking uh, 40 years since independence from British colonial rule. Critics of the king, who took the throne in 1986, say the move is an example of his authoritarian reign in a southern African country that is mired by poverty. Channel Africa spoke to Peggy Makubu, editor of The Nation magazine in Eswatini, about whether Swatis were surprised by the name change. No, I wouldn't say we were surprised. Uh, for a number of reasons, one of them being uh, the king had already been using this name of Kingdom of Eswatini for quite a number of years now uh, in his speeches. In fact, uh, it, 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 it had sort of become part, it, it is part of our vocabulary, you know. Uh, when when Eswatini speaks, it, sure. it comes from Eswatini. It, it's, it's part of our language. There's nothing uh, new about it. But what had happened, what had changed over the last few years was that the king, never referring to Swaziland, was using it more often. So it, it had become part of his vocabulary, um, um, you know, more than saying using kingdom of Swaziland. Uh, so when he made the change, I, I guess you would say, well, it had to happen. He, he had fallen in love with the with the name. Uh, no, we were not consulted. We, I mean, look, Southern is an absolute monarch. There's no mm. there's no uh, question of that. And um, you know, so people were not consulted. Uh, but I, I guess there's an argument to be made to say, well, would we have said no? I doubt we would have. But no, we were not consulted. Are people on the ground concerned at all about the possible cost implications of this process, Mr. Makubu? Well, people are more... What, what has been spoken about, particularly on social media, has been, you know, does this mean that the documents that we have have become obsolete, you know? We've got ID documents, we've got passports, we've got driver's licenses, we've got birth certificates, and a whole range of things. Uh, but the government has said that, no, these things will be phased in over time. Let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, the official from Home Affairs, where passports are issued, said it doesn't mean that the passport that you are carrying will become invalid. But when you get a new one, when you renew it or you take a new one, uh, you will at some point start getting one written, not written Kingdom of Swaziland, but written Kingdom of Eswatini. And those things are going to change that way. Also, I think they, from from what he said, it sounds like you know our IDs are not time bound. But he said we'll have to start changing them. Um, he said that he brought in other reasons why you know you need to change them. For instance, if if you are 18 years old with, a, with an ID now. You might find that the ID at 30 years old will have to change because you look different, you know, sure. uh, to get a new picture. Those things are going to happen, and that's when changes are going to we're going to see changes in in these things. Now there are also talks, uh, Mr. Makubu, that uh, the country's constitution uh, will also have to be rewritten as a result of uh, this process, and could bring uh, changes for the Royal Swaziland Police Force, uh, the Swaziland Defence Force, as well as uh, the University of Swaziland. Is this um, what will happen in the end? I, you know, you never know with Swaziland, but I'm, I'm not sure I understand wh- how the name changed. I mean, if our constitution says the constitution of the kingdom of Swaziland, sure. and you change it to the constitution of the kingdom of Eswatini, how does that affect the clauses that are there? 
you know. Look, let, let me let me let, let me just reemphasize something. Sure. The name Eswatini, if you mm-hmm. separate it from all other things, is a Swazi name that we all know. There's no genius here that came up with um, that came with the name name change. Or it's a word that we use in everyday language when we speak our language. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to understand that. that. There's nothing new about that. Uh, it's just, uh, I, you know, at face value, you could say it's cosmetic. But in real terms, it, it has its implications. Peggy Makubu is editor of The Nation magazine in the kingdom of Eswatini, talking to Kumbero Munjarare. Members of the Congolese community living in South Africa have accused the Democratic Republic of Congo's ambassador to South Africa, Ben Mboko, Mboko, rather, of plotting against his fellow countrymen who protested outside the DRC's embassy in South Africa in December 2016. Eight Congolese nationals were arrested on the day when violence erupted between the protesters and police. They were subsequently charged with malicious intent to damage to property. Six of them have since been released on bail and two remanded in custody, reportedly on the basis that they did not have legal documents to be in South Africa. The eight are appearing before the Pretoria Magistrate Court today for a formal trial. Here's Selena Dobong. The protest on the 20th of December 2016 was part of two days of action in the DRC and in front of the country's embassies worldwide against DRC President Joseph Kabila, whose term of office expired in the same period. Police fired several rounds of rubber bullets and stun grenades after protesters allegedly started pelting the embassy with large stones and plastic parking barriers. Recalling what unfolded that day, spokesperson of the Congolese community, Living in South Africa, Jean Boisa says people were peacefully picketing outside the embassy and were provoked by the police. I was there. I was there. Uh, if any damage to property or malicious uh, damage to property, uh, we've got the, the evidence and the facts. And there's no such thing as malicious damage to property. The violence escalated when they started shooting at people. But we were peacefully uh, demonstrating in front of the the embassy, which is our land. And we had several uh, police people there that shoot bullets, uh, rubber bullets at Congolese people. Some of us were wounded, some of us were severely injured, and um, we had no compensation whatsoever. They dropped the case because they didn't have the time to pursue, they don't have money. The Congolese community is the most marginalized community in South Africa as we speak right away. They picked up even people that were not even concerned in the street just because they were Congolese and they were protesting about the fraudulent elections. So this is not the first case that has happened against Congolese. Protesters have since come to a conclusion that the arrests were more political than normal public policing procedure. Buasa says Kabila's tentacles are able to reach in unimaginable places outside his country. He says through Ambassador Ben Poko, whose term was also supposed to have ended at the same time as Kabila's, a message was sent to anti-Kabila Congolese living in South Africa. We are aware that uh, Mr. Ben Boko, uh, so-called ambassador of the Democratic Republic of Congo, is the one who plotted against our people because uh, Kabila refused to relinquish power on the 20th December 2016. Therefore, he asked the Minister of uh, Relations, uh, External Relations, to have uh, the police 
guard the embassy. And we know that the power uh, which is represented here by Mr. Ben Boko is against all the Congolese that are fighting for justice, that are fighting for human rights, that are fighting for the dignity of Congolese. So, and justice is one of those things that we need to, uh, to restore in the Congo. Once in South Africa your justice system is uh, sound, but sometimes we look like we Congolese are not protected at all. Joseph Danga is among those facing trial. He also denies partaking in the violence that erupted on the day and agrees that their arrests were cooked. You know the problem, as you think, like me, I think that's one is not the issue. It's not the problem we actually make as public violence. It's a political problem. Yeah. For me, I think it's a political problem because we weren't there to embassy to protest. Not to do that. Before we reached there, there was the cops, many cops in the, in our ambassador. The ambassador is like our house. So I think my, myself, I think it's a political problem. They don't like the way as we don't we don't need Kabila. It's a political problem. I can say so. Boise says he has written to South Africa's Minister of Justice Michael Masuta to make him aware of what he describes as unfair treatment by South African law enforcement agencies and external political meddling. The court's verdict is expected later. Reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg, I am Selina Dobong. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Here's Onalenzinzi with your headlines. Good governance activists and members of the opposition in Zambia say Democratic Republic of Congo President Joseph Kabila should be isolated in the Sadek region. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission warns that people found guilty of politically motivated crimes during the run-up to elections may get up to 10 years in jail. And former American President Barack Obama will deliver the Nelson Mandela Centenary Lecture on July 18th at the Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg, South Africa. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsinzi.
Thank you very much, Onele. You are still listening to Africa Digest. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. It is Channel Africa One. You can also send us emails. That address is info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. You can SMS us as well on plus two seven seven six three hundred three three two seven plus two seven seven six three zero zero double three. Now today marks World Book and Copyrights Day. The day seeks to promote reading, publishing and copyright. It also marks the celebrations of authors, books and reading. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Debo Ditejo, who is a Chief Executive Officer at Ditejo Media. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Debo. Thanks for having me, Sumelin. Debo, are people reading? Um, I think, um, generally speaking, uh, people do read, and um, especially when they come across the benefits of reading, uh, particularly those who um, have been encouraged in their households from a younger age. However, we're not a reading nation to the point in which um, we could become globally competitive. If you look at the statistics, um, according to the South African Books Development Council, um, only 14% of South Africans are considered to be um, regular book readers. Um, so, no, we're not, we're not necessarily where we need to be. Um, what's the problem there? You're saying um, it's mostly people who are encouraged um, at home. Um, are schools not encouraging the culture of reading? Um, what's the problem there? Well, there's a perception about um, books as um, something that you do when you're forced at school, um, something that is not cool or fun, and perhaps something that is antisocial. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And, and in order to, to encourage a, a culture of reading, um, we need to deal with the stigmas attached you know, to people who um, are regular and avid readers. Um, secondly, um, I think the main problem is that only 5% of parents in South Africa read books to their kids for leisure. And, I, and that is one of the reasons because a child develops um, most of the habits which they will follow through throughout their lives between the ages of 0 to 12. So that is even before they reach the schools. And so um, parents need to prepare you know, their children before they enter the schools you know, to become book readers and to really inculcate the love of reading books. Mm. Um, and what is the quality of books coming out of South Africa like? Because maybe that might be a problem. People might say, well, we're not finding anything that interests us. Well, I think the, the issue could be the quantity and variety of books that are coming out of South Africa because um, if you compare us to a country like the United States or China, you know, they publish more than 50,000 books per annum. Um, in South Africa, we're only publishing on average 3,200 books per average per annum, and majority of those books are not necessarily from um, African authors, you know, that speak about the African experience. And so we need to particularly focus on developing African authors um, to tell their stories, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just a book. It could be a children's book. It can be a very short story. It can even be poetry. Um, uh, That could entice, you know, the South African audience to become book readers 
And I think once you have material that is relevant, you know, that you can relate to, um, it becomes much more enticing, you know, to pick up a book and read. And when it comes to people reading in their home languages, because you might find that um, a, a parents, certain parents might not be able to read English well, um, is there enough um, out there that parents can read in various indigenous languages in South Africa? Definitely not. Um, and this um, could be because of, obviously, our history of colonization um, and our lack of understanding of the importance of the mother tongue language in teaching a child um, the cultures and traits of Africans so that we can, you know, um, uh, you know, realize our historic mission. Um, so that is not happening, um, and we, we really need to uh, make sure that we do continue to write in our African languages, because if we don't, then more African languages will become extinct, which basically means, you know, that we would have lost our African identity. Mm. Um, now, today is World Book and Copyright Day. What does that mean exactly? Well, the day uh, means that we're, um, you know, it's, it's recognized by the United Nations, you know, to spread um, awareness about the importance of reading books, to celebrate how far we have come in developing literature all, all across the globe, and to also, you know, s- spread an understanding across the world of why it is that we should continue, you know, to, to adopt a culture of reading across the globe. Um, and also, you know, they, they want to teach people why copyrights are important and to influence legislation for governments across the world to respect and to protect copyrights so that, you know, our artists can um, bear the fruits of their hard work. And so this is very important um, for us to, to, to celebrate. And I don't think in South Africa we are doing enough, and I think we, we really need to work harder, you know, to make sure that everybody is aware of this day. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a lot of books that start doing the rounds on WhatsApp, for example, when they do get released for whichever reason. Um, uh, does that infringe on copyright? Yes, it does. Um, you, you may not uh, share a book that you have received um, via PDF. The only time that you can do that is if the book is outside of its copyright. And in South Africa, we recognize that after 50 years of a book being published, that is when the copyright usually lapses. So for the older books, you may be get away with it, but not for the books that have been published over the past 50 years. And what are some of the challenges that writers have in South Africa? I think one of the main challenges um, is firstly the audience development. Um, You may find as a writer that you do not have a large audience because not enough South Africans um, are book readers. Um, I think secondly, it would be funding to ensure that you are able to put together a book because, um, you know, we cannot rely on publishing houses because they may come with their own perspective of the world, which is not congruent with our African perspective. Um, I think also uh, there's a lot of uh, potential publishers that they do not know that they have, you know, the, the potential to realize you know, their gifts of storytelling. 
I mean, we have a lot of people in the township who are great at telling stories, great at, you know, sharing their jokes and so on and so forth, but we have not been able to harness this potential. And so more outreach campaigns need to go into the township so that we can start harnessing the potential from the children when they are young, you know, so that when they grow older, they are in a better position to become authors. Right, Sebuko, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Debo Ditejo there is Chief Executive Officer at Ditejo Media. Scientists from University of Queensland in Australia have discovered a new method that is able to manipulate the immune response which triggers allergy symptoms in mice. The researchers essentially found a way to silence the allergic inflammation, inflammation in mice with a form of immune transfer and a gene therapy, allowing the immune system to become tolerant of previous allergens such as allergy protein as opposed to viewing it as a threat. The discovery comes as countries mark World Allergy Week, an annual initiative which aims to raise awareness of allergic disease and related disorders and to advocate for the provision of training and resources in the diagnosis, management and prevention of these diseases and asthma, which are arising in prevalence around the world. More from Professor Johnny Peter, the head of allergy and Clinical Immunology at South Africa's University of Cape Town and Allergy Advisor to Pharma Dynamics. This is some interesting and exciting data out of uh, Australia and University in Queensland. And in essence, the first thing to say is it is a mouse study. It has a long way to go until humans. But what's very exciting about it is, in essence, what they have is this model of egg-driven airway inflammation or egg-driven asthma, you could say. So it's taking an allergic response to egg, which drives inflammation in the lungs of mice. And what they were able to do is they were able to method of transferring certain immune cells together with some genetic silencing or gene silencing methods to stop that process in its tracks in the mice. could change what is an allergic response into a tolerant response or not a problem. It's sort of the holy grail of allergy research in trying to do that in humans. Now, mice are, of course, not humans, so there's a long way to go. And that particular therapy, if it all goes well, it may start to see some human trials in about five or six years' time. Perhaps to help us understand the issue better, Professor, what usually causes an allergic response? So an allergic response, in its very basic terms, is some immune or inflammatory cells that are responding to things in the environment which are normally harmless to most people. So the example would be something like grass pollen, or in certain instances people have food or allergies to bees. And in essence, what's happening is the body's immune system creates this overactive inflammation, and that causes some of the symptoms that people are familiar with. For pollen, and you talk about a blocked nose and what's commonly known as hay fever, or in more severe terms, it can lead to asthma, which is tight chest and breathing difficulties. And in some severe instances, sadly, that can be causing of death, right? And in the case of bees or food, the most severe reactions are what we call anaphylaxis, where people get tight chest, they might get a red rash, and they might get dizzy and collapse. And both those last two conditions can lead to death, and they do. Now, this newly discovered method is obviously a positive move in the right direction, but you did mention that it still has a long way to go. Talk to us about some of the available immune therapies. How effective are they, and do they provide long-life benefits? 
Yes, sure. So they're definitely therapies for allergy sufferers. And basically what they are is there's antihistamines and there's what we call steroid therapy, which are just like anti-inflammatory drugs that we could use on the various surfaces. We can spray them up your nose, you can inhale them, and those things keep the inflammation of allergy under control. Then the level of therapy is things where we try and actually induce cure. So that would be immunotherapy specifically. Now, the issue with immunotherapy is what we try to do is we try to trick the immune response by giving very, very small amounts of the problem. Let's say in the case of grass, we might give you a small spray under your tongue every day. The problem with this is that you need to take three years of therapy for it to be effective. But it can work and it does work. It reduces people's symptoms and gets things under control. Now the exciting thing about what I mentioned in the beginning is that would stop the need for the three years, right? You might be able to do this rapidly in a week or two. Do we know what the burden of allergic diseases is worldwide and how do these disorders impact a patient's quality of life? So allergic disease is increasing and we have local data which estimates that allergic rhinitis, which is hay fever, affects about 30% of the population and in fact asthma may be even higher at about 40%, some of which goes undiagnosed. People don't even know they have the symptoms. And the main thing is that that can really affect all aspects of people's quality of life. So in terms of asthma, it can actually lead to death, which is the most scary. But in terms of everyday life, there's very, very good data that people get more colds and flu. So people that have like hay fever, they tend to get more sick in winter, more requirement for antibiotics, more time off work. And with that, they stay away from work. It costs money. It costs them activities. So significantly, it affects people's sleep. A condition like uh, eczema, which is also an allergic condition, that has terrible impacts, for instance, on children in terms of their school needs, their ability to sleep. And so these are significant impacts on quality of life. Let's touch on climate change and allergic diseases. Do you think that the extreme weather conditions of the past decade have had any effect on allergy sufferers? Yes, so climate change is an interesting impact in terms of its relationship with allergy. One of the things definitely in a simple term, global warming for instance, it could simply increase the length and intensity of pollen seasons. Professor Johnny Peter, the head of allergy and clinical immunology at South Africa's University of Cape Town and allergy advisor to Pharma Dynamics. He was in conversation there with Elizabeth Lidecha. It is 17.45 Central African time. Your economic news now with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you. The campaign group Human Rights Watch says an Egyptian army operation against militants in Sinai has left 400,000 civilians in urgent need of humanitarian aid. The BBC's Alan Johnston reports. The Egyptian army launched its current extensive operation in the Sinai well over two months ago. Human Rights Watch researchers say severe restrictions have been imposed on the movement of goods and people and that residents are enduring shortages of food, medicine and gas. There are reports too of water and electricity supplies being cut. Human Rights Watch says what's happening borders on collective punishment. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has ordered his troops to use brute force to end the threat posed by Islamic State militants in Sinai.
The Democratic Alliance is calling on South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to deal with government employees doing business with the state. This follows the public procurement report tabled by Finance Minister Ntlantlanene in Parliament, indicating that more than 65 million US dollars of the country's total expenditure goes to businesses owned by state employees. The report states that more than 2,000 employees are actively doing business with government despite regulations passed in 2016 prohibiting this practice. They were given until the end of January last year to either resign or relinquish their business interests. DA spokesperson for Scopa, David Ross, says this isn't all. See that the extent is quite severe, and just the report indicated eight billion rand of, of government expenditure going to about 2,300 businesses, which is only the tip of the iceberg. Noting that there's 28,000 employees registered on the central database, and that indicates the extent of 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 the of the problem, and and also uh, with regards to the non-compliance that we experience. South African freight rail agency Transnet has signed a $1.8 million partnership with a black empowerment company, Soldeco, at Soldana on the Cape West Coast. Its group chief executive, Sia Bongagama, says women and the previously disadvantaged are set to benefit the most from the new partnership. The partnership is to develop an offshore oil and gas servicing facility. Gama says over a thousand jobs will be created during the construction phase. We'll create about 1,300 jobs within a year in terms of construction and then 300 jobs on an ongoing basis throughout. We're very excited because we're moving black people and especially people who are previously disadvantaged from the periphery to the center. And the woman ownership in that is also quite critical. We have not seen many women participate in the maritime sector. Labour unions representing striking bus workers are set to meet with the employer associations on Tuesday at a meeting called by the South African Department of Labour. The meeting is an attempt by the department to resolve the week-long strike after talks deadlocked last Friday. Thousands of bus drivers went on strike last week for better pay. They're demanding a 9.5% salary increase while employers are offering 8.5% for the first year and 8.8 rather 8% for the second. The World Bank says payments from immigrants back to their home countries reached a new record in 2017 despite the increase in transferring those funds. The top remittance recipients were India followed by China, the Philippines, Mexico, Nigeria and Egypt. Sub-Saharan Africa remains the most expensive place to send money to. Europe and Central Asia saw the biggest growth last year, jumping 21%, while Sub-Saharan Africa rose 11%. The U.S. dollar is trading at 9.47 Botswana Pula and at 9.44 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.41 Brazilian Hale, at 61.35 Russian Ruble and at 66.11 Indian Rupee, at 6.29 Chinese yuan and at 12.07 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and at 81 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,309 and platinum is at $933 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $71.75 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bomgard.
Thank you very much, Tracy. Musibudu Makura has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. Organisers of the London Marathon have announced with regret the death of one participant in Sunday's gruelling 42-kilometre event. Our London-based correspondent Geshe Miati reports. The British runner who died was named as Matt Campbell, a 29-year-old and a professional chef. Mr Campbell from the Lake District collapsed after 22 miles. He received immediate medical treatment on the scene from rest doctors but died later in hospital. The late runner, who took part in the Manchester Marathon early this month, was running for a charity and in honor of his father, who passed on in 2016. He is the 12th runner to have died in the London Marathon. The cause of his death has not yet been established. Now back home, the South African Premier Soccer League chairperson Dr. Ivan Koza addressed the media this afternoon following the fan violence that occurred at the Moses Mabida Stadium on Saturday night. Now Kaiser Chiefs suffered a shock 2-0 defeat against our Free State Stars in the Nedbank Cup semi-final following which hundreds of supporters stormed the field of play as the final whistle was blown. Now stadium property and broadcasting equipment was damaged and several security guards were hospitalized. Videos and pictures went viral as social media reported that one of the security guards who was particularly brutally attacked had in fact died. However, Koza revealed that the guard who was initially reported to have been female was in fact a male and was discharged from hospital on Monday morning. Uh, I want to deal with one aspect which was confusing uh, is that of uh, the member of uh, the security that was kicked uh, at the stadium. Uh, I've been reading the media and uh, I've been told that you know there's a lady that has been kicked. Uh, and it happened that you know the person that was kicked was Mr. Sabella Maziba, uh, whose uh, age is 32 and uh, he had head injuries, but was treated in the hospital and uh, discharged. Now, with regards to the violence on Saturday night, Cosa had this to say: uh, The league uh, is shocked, extremely concerned about the acts of serious violence and criminality that occurred after the final whistle the Netbank Cup final between Kaza Chiefs Football Club and Free State Stars Football Club at Moses Mabida Stadium on Saturday night. Ladies and gentlemen, from the outset, I want to make it loud and clear that there is no place, no justification for violence in football or in our society, no place. The damage that these senseless acts of violence cause take more than a generation to correct. These acts are not coincidental. They are deliberate, premeditated, and orchestrated by people whose aim is criminality and the infringement of the majority who are peace-loving and law-abiding. 
While Akosa was not in a position to disclose whether Chiefs will face any further sanction for the matter after recently being fined 250,000 rand for crowd violence. And finally, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee President Gideon Sam says South Africa will be targeting 15 medals from the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. Now, Smatho, um, um, Sam rather, was speaking at a function in the country's capital, Pretoria, earlier today, where South Africa's medalist from the recently completed 2018 Commonwealth Games were congratulated by government and awarded their prize money. In total, South Africa won um, 37 medals comprising of 13 gold, 11 silver and 13 bronze on Australia's Gold Coast to finish sixth in the final medal standings. At the last Olympic Games in Rio, Brazil back in 2016, South Africa finished with a total of 10 medals, two gold, six silver and two bronze medals, a total which uh, matches the previous record back in 1920 as well as in 1952. Those are our sports news at the Sour. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time. Let's check about top stories. Thousands march in Madagascar's capital to protest against the country's new electoral laws. Members of the Congolese community living in South Africa accuse the DRC's ambassador to South Africa of plotting against his fellow countrymen who protested outside the embassy. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumele Lezondi producer, Luanda Mohamed, technical producer, Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za on email, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 27763033273. Plus 27763033273. You can tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Ndimbonile by Lois Obala and Sans.
Dalalik din ni so. Oh.